Today we are uh, just continuing our journey into the scriptures, looking at what the Bible teaches about the church, and uh, there might not be a more relevant topic for us to study in our day and age when there's so much confusion surrounding the idea of the church. Questions like, what even is the church? Who's it for? What's the church's mission? What's the church's priorities? Um, In fact, I bet if we gave a survey to professing Christians just about various things surrounding the topic of the church, we would get a ridiculously wide range of opinions and thoughts and answers. And yet, here's the thing. It's not as if the Bible's unclear about these things. I I think the confusion just simply comes due to a lack of study in general on this topic by a lot of people. And it really starts with the pastors. And it trickles down to the rest of the church. So... I want to be a good pastor to you and to teach you and us about what the Bible says about God's church. Sometimes in our culture, especially in America, churches are kind of started like restaurants, you know? Um, They're they're started to give give some people something different right? Let's start a church that does this because it's different than all the other churches. And if you want to start up a restaurant, you know, you have the freedom to do, do it however you want to. You can offer whatever food you want to. You can cook it however you want to. You can set up your uh, restaurant however you want to. You can make the whole experience kind of your own. You put your own spin on it. And that's, that's wonderful to do with something like a restaurant. But when it comes to the church, God really doesn't toss it up to us and say, put your own spin on it. He has actually told us a great deal about how his church ought to operate and how it, its mission ought to be carried out. And So rather than us valuing our originality and our own set of um, priorities, we ought to try to formulate our views about the church from God's inspired word. So that's what we're trying to do in this study. I'm trying my best as a shepherd of God's flock just to equip us to think biblically regarding his church. So there we are. Just a quick review, not going into any detail, just kind of bring us up to speed and set the context for where we're at. So far we looked at how, or we've looked at the importance of the church in God's overall design and plan Then we looked at the divine origin of God's church. Then we looked at the distinction between the universal church and the local church and how Scripture places a massive weight on the local church and how it is to be functioning. And then last week, we gave a biblical case for church membership into a local church. And all that can be found on our church website. If you missed any of those sermons, I encourage you to catch up and kind of bring you up to speed. But that brings us now to today's emphasis, okay? So this is sort of the next logical step if we're talking about what the Bible's teaching here, this progression of thinking through this topic. Since church membership is biblical, well, then what are the actual responsibilities of a church member? That's just a very practical question, right? Okay, I'm a church member. Now what? That's the issue, right, for today. So think of this. uh, In the business world, for instance, when a person gets hired into a new position, they hopefully read something called the job description, right? What are they responsible for? What are they not responsible for? Uh, who are they responsible to, all of that will be contained in the job description. And all of that is very important in order for that person to function in their proper role as it was intended by the people who made that position, right? Well, the maker of the role or position of church member is God himself. And he's given us a job description, so to speak, in his Word. 
And I know I'm speaking to a mixed crowd today when it comes to membership. You might already be a member here at Jackson Bible Church, or maybe you're looking to be a part of a local church and you're kind of looking for the right church. Maybe you're thinking about joining. Maybe you've begun the process of joining. But really, no matter where you're at, I want every Christian to know what God has called you to if you're going to fulfill your God-given role as a church member. So that's what we're looking at. So let's dive in here. I've got a list of about nine responsibilities, and we'll probably only get to half of them today, okay? Some of them probably could be broken down and into uh, further detail, and, and it could kind of be a heading all on its own with a list under just one. But uh, we're just going to do a general overview. We're essentially just talking about what, is it, what does it mean to live as a Christian in the local church as an integrated, meaningful member, okay? So here's some of our responsibilities. Number one, assemble. That is the easiest and most basic of our responsibilities. We are to be just faithfully and constantly assembling with the church body to which we are committed. We saw um, a couple weeks ago the word church in the New Testament is the Greek word ekklesia, which means assembly. The local church is a gathered assembly. It's certainly more than just any old gathered assembly, but it's at least an assembly of people. God has uh, designed the Christian life to be lived out among other believers in an assembly And the biblical mandate is found most clearly, I think, in Hebrews 10. So let's read that again. Do you have your Bible with you? Open to Hebrews 10. We'll kind of be, since this is, again, more of a systematic approach to looking at this topic, we might be all over the place in the Scriptures. Um, But you're welcome to turn to Hebrews 10 as a starting point. And let's read these verses again. I encourage you to take notes and maybe go over some of this later and... and, uh, Meditate on it later. Think about it. So Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25, says this. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, But encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, we ought to try to notice some things in those verses. One is the rather obvious implication that we need stirring up quite a bit. That's why it tells us to do that. It's like God knows our tendencies, right? Shocker there. God knows those that he's made. The shepherd knows his sheep. He knows that uh, by ourselves we are weak and in danger. Uh, When we lack fellowship with other Christians and we do that on a prolonged basis, we are prone to be um, deficient in our love and deficient in our obedience. We get complacent right? We get um, self-satisfied. We get lazy. We get um, lazy in the, in the way of we drop our guard against sin, and, and it creeps on in, sometimes unchallenged. It takes advantage of us. We just put ourselves in this position of weakness and vulnerability when we get separated from the flock. So, In those verses, let us consider how to stir up one another. Why? Because you need stirring up. It's like God is saying that. We need to be stirred up by other Christians to keep going. If you've you've watched the Discovery Channel or the National Geographic Channel or something like that, you've probably at some point seen a TV show about lions or uh, some other carnivorous predator right? What do those predators always seem to do? Do they go after the biggest and strongest 
prey that's right in the middle of the herd? No, that's not what they do. What they most often do is pick the one who's sort of lagging behind, the one who sort of separated themselves off away from the safety of the group. They've kind of wandered off on their own. That is what happens to us when we neglect the assembly. We make ourselves vulnerable to sin. And verse 25 says we need a lot of encouragement. And that word there means to urge strongly, to appeal to, to exhort. We need to be spurred on by other believers. By the way, do you, do, do you make a conscious effort to do what verse 24 tells us to do? Do you consider how to stir up one another to love and good works? Do you think ahead about that? That's what verse 24 is saying. Do you prepare yourself ahead of time to meet with your fellow brothers and sisters? In other words, do you engage in some godly strategy? In other words, you say to yourself, I want to encourage that particular person today, somebody that you've got in mind. What can I say that might be a fitting word for them? How could I help them? How could I encourage them to keep going, to keep on persevering in the Lord? And you pray for wisdom, and the Lord will help you to know what to say or to do. But that's one thing we ought to be doing. I think maybe we neglect that sometimes. It says, carefully consider how to do this. Let us consider how to... Stir up one another to love and good works. And something else is there, I think. The last statement of verse 25 says, Do this all the more as you see the day drawing near. There is coming a time when your earthly life will be over. Mine too. And there is a lot of truth in that famous little two-line couplet that says, only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. How many people, how many people lay up on their deathbed wishing they had done more for Christ? A lot of people. So, Think about that ahead of time. The day is drawing near. Let that motivate you to surround yourself with an assembly of people now who will spur you on to love and good work so that you don't have to lay on your deathbed wishing, man, I wasted so much time, Lord. I wish I would have done this. I wish I would have done that. I wish I would have been more involved here. I wish I would have saw what you were doing here and joined in. I wish I would have done more for your kingdom. So gather with your brothers and sisters. We assemble as church members. They'll encourage us to keep on going. They'll inspire us to faithfulness, right? And one more thing that really goes without saying, Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 is not optional. It doesn't say you... Do it however you want to, but I think it's a good idea if you meet together. Is that what it says? <laughs> no. And so I, th I think we need to gear our minds that way. We need to understand that if we neglect the regular assembly of the local church, we are sinning in the eyes of God. And that sin needs to be repented of. So there's our first responsibility as church members, assemble with one another regularly. Pretty basic one there. Let's go to number two. Participate. What am I getting at on this one? What I'm getting at here, you, you could go a, a, a different directions with the word participate, but what I'm thinking of here is participation in the ordinances of the church. What's the ordinances of the church? Well, there's two of them given to us by Jesus. That is baptism and the Lord's Supper. And church members are to be 
taking part in both of those ordinances. So let's talk about briefly just what those are. What is baptism? Baptism is this outward sign that you are now part of the new covenant people of God. When someone repents of their sin and believes in Jesus Christ, they are baptized before the whole church. And it's like this two-way public proclamation, okay? On the one hand, the person being baptized is making this public profession of faith in Jesus by saying, the old me has died and the new me has been raised with Christ. If anyone's in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, old things are passed away. The new has come, says 2 Corinthians 5.17. So that person is proclaiming their new allegiance to Jesus. They're saying, I am his and he is mine and I want to obey him and follow him and I want it to be publicly known. The other proclamation within that ordinance of baptism is being made by the members of the church who are witnessing that proclamation of faith as they welcome this person into the family of God and into the fellowship of the church, they're saying, as far as we can tell, this person understands and believes the same gospel that we believe, and they want to serve the same Lord that we're serving. And so we accept them into fellowship with us as a fellow brother or sister in Christ. That's baptism, this two-way commitment there. And we see baptism just all over the New Testament as a, just a pattern. We see it in the early church in the book of Acts. People who believe in Christ, they're baptized. And we read Jesus' command in Matthew 28 where he says this, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And what does he say next? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so the pattern is God sovereignly saves people. That's his prerogative to do. We evangelize, but God saves them. The church baptizes them in his name, Father, Son, and Spirit, and then the church continues to teach them to observe everything that Christ has commanded us in his word. That's discipleship. So that's one ordinance, uh, baptism. The other ordinance given to us by the Lord Jesus is the Lord's Supper. When um, Jesus was with his disciples before his death, he broke bread and he gave it to them to eat. And he said that this was his body that was broken for them. And then he took a cup and said, this is my blood, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins, Matthew 26. And he told them, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. That's recorded for us in 1 Corinthians 11. So we can kind of think of the Lord's Supper this way. Much more could be said about it. But if baptism uh, professes our faith initially in Christ... The Lord's Supper is almost like a renewal ceremony. Every time we take together, we're saying, we still believe. We haven't stopped believing. This is what Christ has done. We're remembering what he did to save me, to redeem me, to wash me from my sin. And, and when I take this bread into my body, I'm literally taking it in physically, swallowing it, and I'm taking the juice into my body, it, it signifies I have taken, I have received for myself Christ-saving benefits. They are part of me. I have received them wholeheartedly. So if baptism proclaims that Jesus is now my Lord and my Savior, then the Lord's Supper says he's still my Lord and my Savior, okay? So... Church membership involves regularly taking the Lord's Supper 
and then regularly participating in baptism so often as the church is blessed to have a baptism, so often as the Lord adds to the number of his family. And um, <clears throat> just for reference, I did preach two different messages. I had to look it up. It was 2019. I preached two messages on the ordinances, one whole message on baptism, one whole message on the Lord's Supper. So if you want to listen to those in more detail, I encourage you to find those. Just search ordinances on the website. They'll come up for you. Um, so again, part of being a church member means regularly engaging in those two ordinances. And then I have somewhat of a side note here that I want to share. We kind of have somewhat of an open communion here at Jackson Bible Church in the sense that we allow for any genuine Christian to participate with us in the Lord's Supper. Whether they're traveling through this area or whether they're not a member but looking for a church to join or maybe they're a missionary with us that day and certainly we would call them a brother or sister in Christ. They're not a member here but we say please partake with us. Um, so we don't require membership to do that. Um, but I can honestly understand why uh, some churches do require membership to take the Lord's Supper. I wanted to just say that the openness that we have here is certainly not intended to communicate that membership isn't important. As if to say, well, I can just take communion and never become a member. Um, it's simply there for an allowance for Christian visitors Christian travelers, but it shouldn't be um, intended, it's not intended for a way for any particular Christian to just prolonged take the Lord's Supper without it ever crossing their mind to become a member. So I just want to encourage you with that and, and say, here's why we're doing that, but it's kind of for the short term. The long term a uh, biblical pattern is you join that church and then you partake the ordinances as a member. You, you join and you, we talked about it before, you raise your flag of allegiance and say, I am one of Christ. Or if you want a different analogy, you don the jersey of uh, the Lord Jesus Christ by joining the church. And, and we talked about a lot of membership stuff last week. So I just wanted to explain that to you because I didn't want to be confusing saying, well, you're saying a responsibility of the church members to take the ordinances, but you can take at least one of those ordinances here without ever being a member. And that is true, but just consider that that is a short-run allowance and not intended for the long term to, to not ever become a member. I hope that makes sense. And then certainly on the other end of the spectrum, if someone is a church member and doesn't participate in the Lord's Supper, not due to being physically hindered, but due to just lack of attendance or something like that, then certainly they would be devaluing and neglecting something that God tells us to do and something that he's instituted for our good, right? Something that he's commanded us to do. And so in that way, they would not be fulfilling their responsibilities as a member, and they're just missing out on a massive blessing, too and privilege to take the Lord's Supper. So a lot of these, by the way, are not merely duties as if the Lord has to drag us to do them. These are glorious privileges, right? We could have called it the privileges of church membership, but I wanted to put somewhat of a obligation upon us because they are uh, commands. So there it is, number two, participate in the ordinances. Let's move on to number three, which says protect. Protect what? Well, in this case, what I mean is protect the gospel. Each and every Christian slash church member is responsible to protect the gospel. How do we do that? Listen to these verses from Ephesians 4. I'll bring them up for you. It says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers 
to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. So, what is that saying? Well, it's saying each believer is to be growing in grace and in the knowledge of Christ so that they can grow into maturity and not be like children who just get tossed to and fro. This person says that, this person says that, and they're just constantly back and forth, never landing on any solid ground doctrinally, tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. That's a vivid picture that it has there. But just to say this another way, all church members are responsible to be growing in their understanding of the Word of God so that they can protect themselves and the rest of the flock from false teaching. That is certainly um, part of the job description of elders as well, to protect God's flock, but it is not solely the responsibility of the elders. It's everyone's responsibility to be learning to be a disciple, uh, to believe for yourself sound doctrine so that we aren't deceived into believing something false and then thus endangering the church, bringing that false teaching into the church. Another place where this becomes clear is in Galatians, the first chapter. Um, The apostle, he chastises not just the leaders of the church, but the members of the church of, of Galatia, the churches of Galatia. Why does he do that? Because he says they were deserting the true gospel for a false gospel. Listen to it. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So how do we protect ourselves from a distorted gospel? Here's how. By each of us knowing the word of God for ourselves. Now that doesn't mean every church member will be equally able to articulate every single nuance of theology and, you know, just be an utter expert in every little corner of theology, but every member should certainly be able to articulate and defend the substance of the gospel, right? You should know and understand as a church member also our statement of faith, what the church says we believe, what we understand the scriptures to teach, here's what it is. You should know that and understand it the best of your ability. And when you sit down and you study the word of God for yourself and you have your, what we sometimes refer to as our private devotion time, your personal devotions, your private devotions, I think we ought to have a place in our mind that, um, that says, you know, I am not merely having a personal, individual moment with God right now. There is a corporate aspect to what I'm doing right now. There is a church-wide ramification to what I'm doing right now. In other words, my study, and put yourself in this sentence, you say my My study and understanding of God's word for myself is not only benefiting me, but it's benefiting the whole church. I am helping my church by studying the word of God faithfully every day, praying, meditating. I am helping my church maintain doctrinal unity and purity. 
We ought to think of it that way. Ephesians 4, uh, verses 15 and 16 says, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, being joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, that's each of you, all of us, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So there it is, church member, protect the gospel. Help your brothers and sisters in Christ protect the gospel. There's a discipleship aspect there as well. You know, the uh, company Under Armour has that slogan that's kind of been geared toward uh, athletes. It says, protect this house, right? Have you seen that? Well, Christians can wear a shirt if we wanted to that says, protect this gospel. The gospel found in the scriptures delivered to us by God through his apostles in his word. We all do that by just growing in our knowledge of the Son of God as the verse said earlier, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Ephesians 4.13. Okay, so protect the gospel. Number four, define. Church members are collectively responsible to define the membership. Let's talk about that for a minute. For a minute. The members of the church are responsible to both receive and dismiss members. We mentioned uh, 1 Corinthians 5 last week where Paul instructed the members of the Corinthian church to remove someone from membership because they were living in grievous, open, public, unrepentant sin. And he didn't just tell the elders or the deacons or some other church leaders about that. He told all the members to do that. Remove him. God has given church members a measure of responsibility and authority to be able to recognize other kingdom ambassadors and to affirm their profession of faith. And can the church get that wrong? Yeah. We are not infallible. None of us are, right? But here's what's happening when a church accepts a new member. We are saying together, similar to what I said earlier, this person, as far as we can tell, is an ambassador for Jesus Christ. And we say that to the whole world. We're saying, in a sense, we can vouch for this person in a real yet fallible way. We see the fruits of repentance in their life. We hear them proclaiming the, their belief in the true gospel, and the whole church welcomes them into membership if that's the case. On the other hand, the whole church, again, has the responsibility to dismiss people from membership who are acting like unbelievers, right? What do I mean by that? Jesus lays it out clearly for us in Matthew 18. We read some of that last week. Let me just summarize it for you today. Jesus says, when a person sins, you go to him privately first, and you tell him his fault as your brother, and if he repents, says, you've won your brother. Great. Process over. If he doesn't repent, Jesus says, take one or two others with you. Talk to him again. Show him that it's not just you seeing this and you have some bias against him. There are two or three other people that love him who are saying the same thing. Brother, have you seen this sin in your life, this obvious thing? And they're not going to him for something that's you know, closed up in his heart that they can't prove. We're talking about public, open sin. So take one or two others with you. Talk to him again. He says, 
If he still doesn't listen to that group, still doesn't repent, he says, tell it to the church. And that's where it becomes all of our responsibility to lovingly reach out to that person, that wayward person, and to not hit them over the head or punish them in some kind of way, but to encourage them to come back to the Lord in repentance. James 5, 19 and 20 says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. That is our responsibility as an entire church body. And then, and only then, if they still won't repent, after the whole church has lovingly gone after them, then, Jesus says, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, just treat him as an outsider. He's not one of mine. What you need to do is witness to him, evangelize him because he's living in such a way that says he's not a believer, even though he once made that profession. And at that point, the church is not making an infallible declaration that this person is 100% an unbeliever. We are not saying that if we ever had to make it to that point. What the church is doing, though, is they have to, we have to as a church body, withdraw our positive affirmation of that person's profession. We have to say, we don't know 100%, but as far as we can tell, we can't affirm that person is genuine anymore because they're not repenting of their sin, and that's one main thing Christians do. They repent of their sin. Again, can churches get this wrong? Yeah, certainly can. We're not omniscient. Um, but when a church body, you know, removes someone from membership after taking those serious steps, those loving steps, those patient and very private steps at first from the Lord Jesus, um, if, if it makes it to the end and, and we have to remove someone, we're just saying we can no longer affirm that person's profession of faith because it looks like to us they're an unbeliever and we need to warn them and not let them keep deceiving themselves. And maybe the Lord in his grace uses that wake-up call to say, wow, the whole church thinks I may not be saved. What am I doing? And maybe the Lord, something goes off in their mind and their heart and they come back to their senses. Or maybe they repent for the very first time because they really weren't his. And the Lord uses that disciplinary process to bring them to faith. So, there is something very solemn and serious when a whole church together agrees and says, our friend, we think you might be an unbeliever, and we pray for you, we want you to repent, and we pray that God restores you. So, it's all, all through love. But the main point here for today, without going into every detail of church discipline, because I've already said we're going to do a whole message on that when we, get to there, when we get to that point, but the main point here today is that it is the responsibility of each and every member to define the church membership by receiving and dismissing members, okay? Number five, this is the last one we'll cover today, love. Love really just defines everything that church members need to be doing. It's the umbrella under which every other thing is done. There is nothing that we're told to do in the scriptures that is outside the realm of love. We see that everywhere in scripture. Jesus said, the greatest commandment of all is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And then the second is like unto it, 
love your neighbor as yourself. And he said, on those two commandments hang all of the law and the prophets. In other words, everything it says in the law and everything the prophets were telling you, it's all under this banner of love God and love your neighbor. We could also say that, you know, not only does the law and the prophets hang on that command to love God and love our neighbor, we could say everything about what church members do hangs on that. The apostle um, Paul prays for the Ephesians this way, that they might be rooted and grounded in love. Ephesians 3.17. So it's like everything grows from this root, this foundation, which is love. And in the New Testament, love is not a vague feeling It's not a sentiment that's locked up in our hearts where we have to say, well, I do have love in here. I know I'm not, I know there's no way you can tell that it's real or not, but it is in here. Love comes out in concrete service to one another. It is a, uh, it comes out in Christian service. There may be an emotional aspect to it. There's nothing wrong with having emotions of love toward one another, warm feelings of affection toward one another, but our love toward one another is not primarily a feeling. It's something that's demonstrated in how we live and how we treat one another. It's so much wrapped up in that. Our fellowship and our treatment of one another is so much wrapped in that that John says this in 1 John three eighteen: little children... Let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. Love comes out in your deeds, how you serve one another. That is a big responsibility and privilege of being a church member. Here we are, by the way, back to those one another commands that we talked about last week. I think I read off about 30 of them rapid fire to you last week. And there's lots of them having to do with love. Love one another with brotherly affection. Romans 12, 10. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart, says Peter. 1 Peter 1, 22. Or 1 John, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. And then later on in chapter 4 of 1 John, John says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So love is this overriding characteristic of a church member, from serving one another to bearing with one another's weaknesses and faults, to protecting the gospel, to assembling with other people, other believers, to encouraging them, to even, yes, having to remove someone from church membership if they don't repent of sin. All of that is done out of love. It is all out of love. The apostle also says this, by this... It is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Serious words there. In verse 14, the very, uh, just a couple verses later, we know that we have passed out of death into life Because we love the brothers, whoever does not love abides in death. So loving our brothers and sisters in Christ really becomes this litmus test of true saving faith. It's like a birthmark of every believer. Do you love the brothers and sisters in Christ that God's placed you in? It's the works that accompany your living life very much living and 
saving faith. I didn't say that well, but it's the works that accompany true saving faith, loving one another. Do you love the people who Christ loves? Do you love the people that Jesus gave his life for? That is what Christians do. This is what church members do. So, very practically speaking, if you're ever at a loss for what to do for your fellow church members in any situation, you say, I just don't know what to do. Just ask yourself a few questions and maybe God helps you go in a certain direction. You just say, how can I love this person? What can I do to serve this person? What can I do or say to let this person know that I love them truly and I'm interested in their spiritual well-being and interested in their family and interested in their whole family's spiritual flourishing, what can I do to show them that and you will be loving them? And if we want to get real practical, we just ask, okay, what does love look like? Well, 1 Corinthians 13 is a good place to go, isn't it? Maybe we should take our cues from that. Let's just do a little, short little section of that, the, the main meat of that. First of all, it says love is patient and kind. So I want you to put all this in context of church membership relationships. Church members are to bear with one another in patience. They are not to have short fuses with one another. They're long-suffering toward one another. They're kind to one another. It comes out in how we interact. It comes out with how we speak, among other things. Then he says, love does not envy or boast. Church members ought not to be proud, boastful people. We sang it earlier, who do we boast in? Just Jesus, that's all, not in ourselves. It's anti-love to be boastful or envious. And he says, it's not arrogant or rude. As we love one another, we don't think too highly of ourselves. We don't treat each other with indecency or in a disgraceful way. We treat one another with honor. Mark talked from Romans 12 earlier this morning, outdo one another in showing honor, it says. It says, love does not insist on its own way. When we love each other, we have each other's good in mind, not our own, right? In the words of Philippians 2, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Love is not irritable or resentful. So love is slow to take offense. It doesn't hold a grudge. It doesn't keep a record of wrongs. It says it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love isn't happy when someone falls. It grieves over sin And it rejoices in good qualities. It rejoices in righteousness and truth. And then he says, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So, bears all things. Love puts up with annoyances. And it never gives up. It bears all things. It believes all things, not in a gullible sense, but in the sense that even when everything seems to be falling apart, love still believes that God is accomplishing his divine plans in that person and maybe through me to them. It hopes all things. It waits for positive results. It's not pessimistic. We have a hope. We have a bright future. Very bright if we're in Christ. It hopes all things. It sees what God is doing. Perhaps even through dark valleys 
and it focuses itself on the hope that's coming out the other side. And then it endures all things in the sense that it's just love is tenacious in all circumstances, whether it's pain or deprivation or suffering or loss or death or loneliness. Love endures. It perseveres through it all. This is the kind of love that church members are to have for one another. And we read it earlier, but Ephesians 4.16 says once again, when each, when each part of the body is working properly, referring to the body of Christ, it builds itself up in love. Church members love. So I think we'll pause right there and continue the list next week. I'll leave you sitting on the edge of your seat and not tell you what the last four are. We'll go over them next week. But just to recap, church members assemble. They participate in the ordinances. They protect the gospel. They define the membership. And they love both God and each other. We'll look at four more next time. Let's pray together. Father, what a privilege it is to be a part of your family, adopted sons and daughters in Christ. Lord, it blows our minds when we read in the book of John, for instance, that you have given us as a love gift to your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we desire to be pleasing to you in what we do including all of our functioning as church members. Lord, give us the self-awareness to see where we might be falling short in any of these areas, with any of these responsibilities. Give us, Lord, the zeal and the desire to take all of these responsibilities seriously. And Lord, just ultimately work your sovereign will through us to make disciples and build your church. Thank you that you are at the helm of this endeavor. You're leading, you're guiding, you're orchestrating. It's all by your power. And we just want to be on board with what you're doing. So, Lord, help us to do so. And, Lord, thank you once again for the saints at Jackson Bible Church and what you're doing in their lives. They are a testimony of your grace. Help us, Lord, to be a faithful, healthy church that brings you honor and glory. We pray all this in Jesus' name.